0: How much do you think about innovation? I mean the innovation that applies directly to you. So for example, if you're in a business that's selling to other businesses, it's hard to find a company like that that's not talking a lot about wanting to be more innovative. But what if you're in another business? What if you're in a consumer business? You've probably seen how something that was attractive to your customers at a given point in time maybe became a little stale or got eclipsed by someone else who was doing an even better job, who thought of even more up to date, better ideas to please the same customers and get their mind share and money. Or maybe you're in the nonprofit world. Maybe you work for an organization that is responsible for social change or improvement in some way, and it's hard to see one of those organizations that's really sheltered from the risk of some other nonprofit slowly finding ways to satisfy the original needs of the original nonprofit in a way that's better. That's where the, there's a lot of energy around that. And we've seen that in the part of the philanthropic world that I am exposed to. We see that quite often. There's relatively fierce competition, and it's, it's a friendly competition. It's not uh, an adversarial competition, but it's easy to lose relevance unless you are finding new ways to add value in the part of the world that you're trying to affect. And it's funny, you sometimes hear people self-describe as not being a risk taker. I'm not really innovative because I'm not a risk taker. But the contradiction is that not innovating only seems unrisky. You can seem quite placid and quite stable until suddenly you're not. You just notice that suddenly you've lost relevance. So it's a false stability. The, The greater risk is in not innovating. And innovation can be messy. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But it's actually lower risk and long-term less fragile to be in an innovative company than to be in a company that's not trying to innovate. I started leading the innovation efforts at my company, Intralox, in late 2011. So, I'm not an engineer. I think my main qualification for leading the innovation group here was enthusiasm. I had seen firsthand when I was in the commercial business units the disadvantages that we had when we were not innovating in some cases, and the advantages that we had when we were. And the difference was so stark that it was uh, a very profound lesson that I never forgot. You could almost say, you know, people who grew up in the depression never came to feel later that they had enough money no matter no matter how wealthy they became. Someone who had experienced that sort of financial hardship or financial fear never felt economically secure no matter what. That may be mildly true of me. I. I uh, I never feel like we have too much intellectual property, too much innovation, or too high a rate of improvement in our value proposition. So anyway, my mandate when I took over was to raise our rate of innovation, and I was pretty enthusiastic about that. The only problem was, despite my enthusiasm, I'm not sure I actually knew how. So imagine you take that job. Imagine you're asked to lead the innovation group. a pretty large business-to-business company and your mandate is to raise the level of innovation. What would you actually do after your second day on the job and after your first cup of coffee at work? What would you be thinking about? I'll tell you what we did. We started attacking the enemies of innovation. So, Instead of saying, how do you innovate, I'm not sure you can just mandate innovation or even directly control innovation, but you can certainly say, how do I create an environment that makes innovation a lot more likely? So one enemy of innovation is working on unimportant stuff, working on stuff that's not going to drive huge customer value and fortunately we were in a very lucky place. I've explained in a previous podcast how our company sells directly to the users of our products and we have a high service level that gives us a real intimacy at the organizational level at the micro conveyor level and everywhere in between and so we have lots of touches and we have pretty good texture from which to not only evaluate the ideas that the customers give us but to have independent ideas. So we started just saying, let's be very highly selective and use good thinking as we look for those opportunities. A second enemy of innovation can be problem definition. Imagine you visit your doctor and say, I need an appendectomy. What would you think of the doctor who just nods his or her head and says, well, the patient needs an appendectomy. Let's find space in the operating room and get this one done what kind of a doctor would you think that professional was? Well, obviously, you'd expect the doctor to ask a few questions and decide what you really needed. The same thing comes to us in new products. In our new products group, we get a lot of requests the engineering equivalence of requests for appendectomies and fortunately our lead engineers are very good at looking behind those requests to say what's the real problem here this may be a, just a wrinkle on Steve Jobs famous quote you can't just do what customers ask by the time you get it to them they'll want something else I think what he's really saying is you need to look for foundational value creation and not be just a slave to the the expressions of the customers obviously it has to be driven by customer value but you have to be looking, have an independent view of the problems you're trying to solve. A third major enemy of innovation can be siloing. There's lots of good literature on this. A lot of good stuff has been written about the need for fluidity in an innovative environment, the need for different brains to be connecting and get some ideas bouncing around. But imagine one of our customers had asked us to solve a a big problem a complicated problem with big impact on their business and we gave it to someone who was whatever number of years out of engineering school and that person sat at her desk and just worked on it solo and that's the best we can do it's much better if instead we can create a really good conversation with a lot of experts inside the company and outside the company and say okay here's the problem definition let's do some joint thinking about what disciplines might this involve and how do we get this going and so that's a very different model from that idea of the lone inventor that you see in a lot of innovation literature, the sort of the iconic lone wolf that comes up with something. We just don't see that too often here. We actually see lots of brilliant inventors, but they need to be in a fluid environment where they're touching problems and whether they're touching them firsthand or whether they're connected to people who are talking about the problems. And that's just a lot more effective for us. And so that's a different mindset, right? So if I'm the person who thinks I need to own all the solutions, I need to be have my name on all the patents, I'll be in the way of that process. Whereas if I can say, no, I'm going to manage the conversation and make sure that the best brains get the right stuff thought through, and then I'm going to make sure that the right thing gets released for our customers, that mindset is much more aligned with the owner mindset, and it's a lot more productive. So those are the three things that we really say are the enemies of innovation, and let's make sure we're attacking those. When you're running an innovation group, especially a very collaborative innovation group, culture is a big deal. I've talked in previous podcasts about the importance of culture in our organization, especially the freedom and even the responsibility to speak frankly and disagree. That's really important when you're in the engineering world. It's really hard to fake it with new products or innovation. If your product doesn't work, it's very hard to pretend that it does. And the feedback loops are very short-term, very clear, and very direct. And so we're really dependent on everyone to feel comfortable disagreeing. But we're also very dependent, and this is part of the tricky area, we're very dependent on everyone feeling free to share an idea, you sometimes, if you can work with an engineer, you can say, sometimes if you work with an engineer, you can have a very excited conversation one-on-one about a lot of innovative possibilities. And then you see that same engineer clam up in the presence of peers. It's, uh, you get a signal for how people are measuring themselves when you see something like that. Engineering is one of the knowledge professions like medicine or law where it's pretty important to have good credentials and to be considered intelligent and learned and so you're, you find people being careful in the presence of peers because of that some of our most inventive people either find ways to to get away from that environment or to overcome that environment and just be married to outcomes and not always on seeming smart not always be married to seeming smart in the presence of peers that's a big deal The willingness to be a little bit vulnerable is a big deal, and you can partly coach that, but you also have to try to create an environment where that's true. So I, for one, try very hard to make sure that my first reaction to any kind of an idea is, tell me more, and not anything that's going to make the person proposing the idea self-conscious. It's a kind of vulnerability to say or do anything original in a way that other kinds of activities aren't. And so you have to understand that if you're managing creative people and engineering or inventive engineers are one of those. So there's no danger of a bad idea getting all the way through our system, but there's a great danger of good ideas being nipped in the bud too early. So I try to keep the wrong people out of the room when young, pe- when young ideas are being discussed and we want the critical thinkers to, to come in a little bit later when we've fleshed this thing out a little more. I would even take it one step farther. There's a certain type of personality that just gets a kick out of innovation and there's a certain type that doesn't. So lots of people in business say we need to be more innovative. They want more innovation. But a lot of those people when they say that, they're like young people who say they want to have children. And what those young people really want, what they have in mind when they say that is the grateful achievers someday at their Thanksgiving table. What they don't have in mind when they say we would love to have children is the long pregnancy, the difficult, painful labor, the early sleepless nights, the diaper changing, the terrible twos, the ungrateful adolescent. They don't, that's not what they're excited about when they say they want to have children. They're, they want really want the end product of having children or the side effects of having children. And so that's what a lot of people in business want. They want to be able to please their accounts and be the state of the art when they're on a sales call. They don't want to put up with the messiness of innovation if they understand what that is. Because true innovation is, by definition, going to be strange. You can almost see this when you take something interesting, some of their most original ideas, the first reaction might be, I didn't think it would look like that. Well, think about that for a minute. Of course, you didn't think it would look like that. If, if it had been something you thought it would look like, then it wouldn't have been inventive. And so there's just a, a recognition of some personalities are not cut out to uh, hang around with two-year-olds. And some personalities are not cut out to be useful or constructive in the early days of an innovation. And you need to know which is which and make sure you're populating the early stages with the right people. And then, of course, as these ideas mature and you're trying to tick off the feasibility showstoppers, yeah, then you want to be rigorous, but not in a way that chills the innovation. There's a really good book on this. Gordon McKenzie was the creative director at Hallmark Cards, or Hallmark in Kansas City years ago. He was a speaker at a session I attended in the early 90s. He has a, a good book about how do you create an environment that allows innovation, or at least doesn't chill it. It's called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. And people like Tom Kelly at Ido, I hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, which is a famous inventive company, really revere Gordon McKenzie, who's no longer living. But that's a pretty interesting book about the risks of chilling inventiveness and how you understand that and try to cut across it. So when you can make that real, when you can say, how do you create an environment that nurtures that, but still you find ways to flow that into a high-service, high-production environment, that's when you get the real wins, and that's where the art is. And at any rate, those are some of the principles at least in my mind, of how to make innovation real in a business-to-business environment. And some of those, I think, translate outside the B2B environment, and maybe you can decide which ones do.